0: Welcome to Hard Rock Saves the Space Dandy, a podcast exploring science fiction in Asian media, from comics to films as well as animated television series. My name is Dave, uh, and I'll be your host for the show. Uh, as this is the first episode, uh, we'll take a moment to discuss the formatting and how everything will be moving forward. Uh, the show itself is going to be divided into seasons, focusing either on a specific content creator uh, or a subgenre of science fiction. For this first season, We'll be taking a look at selected works of Japanese director Amamiya Keita, uh, both his live-action films um, as well as some of his animated series that he's worked on. Initially uh, I considered covering his filmography in chronological order, but uh, it'll probably be a little bit more interesting if we jump around a bit. First up, we'll be taking a look at the Zerum series, both of the live-action films um, as well as the six-part OVA animated series. Chronologically, the live-action films were released in 1991, while the OVAs, uh, they came out in 94. But in the setting of Zerum itself, the OVA uh, acts as a prologue to the live-action films. Uh, I guess for better or worse, there's a few differences um, in the settings of both the live-action and the animated films where they don't blend together quite as well as I think they probably could have. But I think the, the differences. differences that occur are something we'll cover um, moving forward. So for this first episode, uh, I'll be taking a look at the first three uh, (laughs) episodes, the first three episodes of the animated series. uh, And the latter half, um, four, five, and six, we'll take a look at next time. After that, we'll um, dive into the live action films and probably split those into their own individual episodes. Basically, I'll, I'll see how, these first few go and, um, decide at that point. Um, for the show format itself, uh, I won't only just be looking at these as at the films, but if I can run across any interviews, um, I'll take those into consideration. And I have already found a few, um, transcripts from older interviews and magazines, um, as well as some fanzines. And the DVDs that I picked up do have uh, both commentary tracks in the case of the live-action films, and video interviews um, for the OVAs uh, on both the character designer um, and Kata. Um, uh, Keita. Uh, and it's it's nice that the these uh, these films are a little bit older, of course. Uh, so since they've been out uh, as long as they have, there's a a little bit more material um source wise uh to kind of dig through that might not be as as readily available uh, with a newer series um the podcast itself I'll probably be sticking to uh late 70s 80s and 90s uh, media le- less so things that are more current uh but again we'll we'll kind of ...judge that uh, as we go and see how the this season um, concept sort of pans out. So I guess we'll uh, kick it off with the beginning of the Zerum OVA series, uh, episode one, entitled Pitch Black. It, along with uh, the rest of the series, was directed by Tetsuro Amino, with uh, Masakazu Katsura uh, acting as um, original character designer... And Amamiya Keita um, performing uh, producer duties um, as well. I think he basically just oversaw the production uh, of the animated series. Um, the director he uh, his filmography is pretty interesting in of itself. He directed the full um, SPT um animated series as well as the... Well, he he performed storyboard duties for the Dirty Pair original TV series uh, and the OVA um, Dirty Pair from Lovely Angels with Love uh, on episode two. So I guess it's just a single episode of that one. Further, uh, I guess, directorial duties were (laughs) spanning several episodes of the Macross TV series and, or I should say Macross 7 uh, TV series uh, as well as the OVAs and several episodes of Mobile Suit SD Gundam and he also directed a uh, adaptation of the Starship Troopers novel uh, four episodes of a six episode series back in uh, 1988 That's um, pretty interesting. Let me see if I can uh, track those down. Uh, As far as the character designer, um, Masakazu Katsura, um, he was given pretty much free reign um, to design the characters as long as they hewed somewhat close to the um, concepts laid out in the live-action films. His his character designs are pretty distinctive, particularly in uh, the case of their hairstyles and facial features. A lot of the characters in Zerum are um, reminiscent of his main characters, I guess, in um, the manga's Video Girl I, Shadow Lady, <clears throat> and DNA Squared, uh, a little bit less so in his later works, uh, the manga Zetman, and the um, animated series Tiger and Bunny, I guess his personal style um, had matured by then. Uh, there's a good 15 years um, in between <laughs> the Zerum comics and, or I guess the, not the same comics, but the uh, Zerum uh, OVAs and uh, say, Tiger and Bunny. Well, I guess your uh, <laughs> personal style will evolve over time and that's definitely the case here. And with the uh, core staff out of the way, I guess that brings us to the actual episode Uh and I would be remiss if I didn't cover what the core plot of Zerum series is in, in the first place. Um, the series centers around the bounty hunter Iria and her continued struggle against the quote-unquote uh, immortal space beast uh, Zerum. As I mentioned, the OVA series uh, is a prequel to the live-action films. And that being the case, Arya's character here is um she's more inexperienced, and she's in fact an apprentice hunter uh alongside her brother glenn and their... well he's a teammate, but he is a sort of handler um assigning you know, doling out assignments um and that's bob the the trio work for a company known as GOMVAC Security and Investigations. Um, and uh, as far as the at least the first three episodes are concerned, um, the series itself doesn't really dig a hole into what the Bounty Hunter job specifically entails. Um, it seems to be a sort of jack-of-all-trades organization. Iria is shown handling a hostage um situation like she's resolving that Um, and while this doesn't appear to be a job that an apprentice uh, bounty hunter is supposed to undertake alone um, she really has no trouble completing it and then uh, we find out a little bit later that uh, Bob has assigned um, himself and Glenn to uh, looking into a potential hijacking of a cargo um, freighter this uh, this particular job kicks off the the main plot, um, where we're eventually introduced to Zeram. Uh, now now this job that they that they've acquired is assigned by the Tibadai uh Corporation. I would say they're probably loosely inspired by um, the Wayland Uteni uh, company in um, the Alien franchise, but they've hired uh, Gomvek Security to look into this um, hijacking and resolve it. We also get our first uh, bit of contention um, on the team between uh, Iria and her brother uh, and and Bob, I guess. Um, Initially, when Iria was handling the hostage situation, she bumps into a um, a fellow Gombak security associate um, by the name of Fujikuro. And it's through Fujikuro that we discover uh, Iria... It really wasn't supposed to be, um, resolving a hostage situation on her own. Uh, it's not a job for an apprentice, um, bounty hunter, and she has to uh, to obtain her full bounty hunter license before accepting such assignments. Um, this in turn leads to um, a bit of conflict between Bob, Glenn, and uh, Fujikuro when, um, Fujikuro discovers that, uh, Bob has given himself and, um, Glenn the, uh, assignment to check into this, um, hijacked space cargo freighter. At, at this point, um, when Fujikuro is sort of making his, uh, case as it were to, to, to you know, partner up with them uh, and join them on this particular mission. Uh, Yuria intercedes on her brother's behalf, um, basically using her brother's uh, three-barreled rifle, the Borubdin, to hold off Fujikuro, uh, so Glenn and Bob can head to the transport station. This is where we kind of get our first look um, at both the shields and the teleport technology uh, that we sort of find uh, commonplace in the Zerum universe. um this is probably some of my favorite design work uh, as far as visible tech is concerned the uh the design of the transport hub is it's run of the mill um however when they teleport up to the orbital um space station it's here where you sort of see that um a uh, really good example of the the blending of futuristic and um almost anachronistic, um, design elements. The, uh, the station itself has tile overhangs, like, attached to it. Um, I guess, sloping tiles that you would normally see on a, uh, old, um, like, Japanese castle wall. Or, I guess, um, the, the gates surrounding um, the fortresses. Uh, it's, it's really, um, evocative. Not only that, but the, um, the shielding on all of their um, their ships. It's, by and large, most of the designs are uh, organic-based. I guess an example would be in the interview with um, Amemiya, he, he says that a lot of his inspiration, um, in, in particular for Zerom, uh, was uh, some East Asian cultures, uh particularly vietnam um and thailand uh we we get uh, a lot of the naming conventions um seem to be thai uh in, in in this series at least not only that but the um the clothing designs the um the general idea of these sort of waterside villages um it, it's all uh suited to that demo. Sort of atmosphere, and um, the the shields themselves, in particular, uh, are they're not really opposed to that um, organic design, but I guess they're they're specifically in contrast to it. Uh, the shields on the ships, and uh, as we find out uh, in, a, in a later episode, um, personal shielding devices—they're all um, very angular and sort of basically feel like uh origami designs they're um formed of a lot of uh triangle um like lattice pieces sort of um attached together crystalline i guess <laughs> would be the easier uh comparison they're very crystalline in nature um which is a natural design um but a lot of the other technology is sort of rounded edges um at, at any rate uh Design is, um, I don't know, it's aesthetically pleasing, I guess. <laughs> was what I was uh, attempting to get at. Plot wise, um, during this flight, um, from, uh, Fujikuro, Iria joins up with her, her brother, sort not really stowing away, but she kind of just forces her way, um, onto the mission with the, with her brother and Bob. The trio make their way to the, um, on uh, but freighter uh, the Karma, and I guess that would be my like third favorite design, um, architecturally um, in, in the series, is the um, the Karma. It's um, sort of shaped like a conical straw hat. Um, if you had an engine on the underside of it, uh, it's. I don't know, it's, um, it's, I guess, again, it's just that rule of cool, it looks it looks good. Um, but, uh, it's here that we see, um, Bob uh, of the, of the trio is the most, um, tech-savvy. And he attempts to sort of bypass any, um security issues that the, uh, the hijackers may have put in place by directly contacting the, um, karma computer. Uh, <laughs> karma computer, karma chameleon. Um, no, the, uh, karma computer, but, uh, it's also here that we get our first really cool, um, sound cue. So as he, uh, inter- he attempts to do his interface, um, with the computer remotely, we get this sort of uh, Buddhist monk chant um, coming through the uh, speakers. Now, now I don't think this is uh, uh, like a diegetic sound. Um, It's just a cue for the audience to uh, know that something's up. And, of course, at at this point, he mentions that he can't um, get in contact with the computer. The Hijackers must have done something and they're preventing his access. So, uh, instead, they have to uh, kind of force their way into one of the cargo bays. Um, it doesn't take them long to locate the survivors uh, as well as the um, uh Vice President um, Putabaya. And, uh, of course, here the audience can see something's a little bit amiss, um, Putabaya is not the most um, forthright uh, individual, and uh, it's pretty obvious that he's hiding something from um, our trio. Um, And here... Of course, it doesn't take them long to uh, run into... soon after uh, rescuing the crew uh, and Putabaya they of course run afoul of our uh, immortal space beast, uh, Zerum and the the first encounter goes uh, well I guess it goes fairly well um Glenn is able to hold off uh, Zayram while while, uh, Iria and Bob and the others uh, try to make their escape back to the uh, to the shuttles in the dog make their escape to the uh, escape shuttle (laughs) Glenn is able to, um, hold off Zarum's advances, uh, Glenn is able to hold off Zarum while, uh, his sister and, um, the rest make their, make their way to the escape shuttles on, on the, on the ship. Uh, originally when they docked, uh, one thing I, um, I guess, I just forgot to, right, sort of skipped over, um... Glen and Uriah's ship, the Craper. um, far as I can tell, Craper is, like, the the type of ship that it is. It's, um, it's pretty cool. I should have described it earlier. It's, um, it's shaped like Landspeeder from Star Wars. Uh, if you were to allow it to flip over and have a reversible top and bottom, so there's no true underside, um, it can kind of spin, but uh, it has two—I guess—sort uh, of umbrella-shaped cone on both um, the the rear upper and lower half. Um, not doing a very good job describing it, but uh, it, yeah, basically, it's a land speeder with like two little cones on the back. But originally when they docked in the, um, in the bay, Glenn had, uh, scattered around, um, uh, a bunch of little cow on the ground. And one one thing that I had wanted to, I guess, discuss was uh, the nature of the casings of the cow were, um, bamboo tubes. So a lot of the things that the bounty hunters use, um, Their their tools and a lot of their weapons are kind of one off items, but they're. Guessing another really good example of this uh, co-opting of um, organic materials uh, and futuristic technology. um, When Iria is uh, capturing the um, hostage taker uh, (laughs) in the first uh, in, in the prologue of the the episode. Um, she's using like wooden manacles um, <clears throat> to handcuff him. So, uh, just like aesthetically, that like, that's that's uh, the vibe that this show kind of carries with it. And I think that that's what makes this um, so so distinctive and just a really strong representation of um, Amamiya's work these sort of trappings are are things that he works or that he he uses um, in both the live-action films, um, the animated works, and uh, as we'll eventually get to um, quite quite a bit down the road uh, in a few episodes, um, one of his original films, uh, the 1988 um, Mirai Ninja. Uh, a, A lot of the design decisions, I think, that are made in the OVA here are carries o- are holdovers not only from the Serum live action film, but uh, really from uh, Mirai Ninja. Another example I guess would be the uh um uh uses these um kind of assassin robots uh to kind of bother the Gompak security crew, and uh, the the robots themselves their their design it's it's heavily uh, I really don't want to say inspired by I think it's just it's heavily referencing the earlier uh, ninja robots in um, Mirai Ninja. Uh, I'll, I'll discuss a little bit more about that and the, I think that some of the design it's not really going to be decisions because I don't don't have uh, access to that kind of thing um, from um, Amemiya but uh, just sort of as a hallmark uh, of what he does and uh, we'll also I think take a look at um, other series and see if some of these self-created tropes um, m- make another appearance or how they evolve um, throughout the, the the body of his work. But uh, back to the main plot here. Um, while Iria and the others make their escape and Glenn's holding off Zerum, we find out here uh, kind of just how uh, immortal um, Zerum may in fact be. It's not really a, just like a, a moniker, but it's a, a true function of his Form. Um, Zerum himself, or possibly herself, I guess, it's uh, not specifically gendered, but we get a little bit of hint in the, I believe it's the second live action film, um, that the true body of Zerum, or at least the, the base form, um, is um, feminine in shape would be remiss, I think, in not describing uh Zerum itself at this point, uh based on um the earlier interview with um, Amamiya, the design design decisions for um Zerum, at least the largest influence would be wandering monks from old uh Chambara films. So just the overall like the overt Um, silhouette of Zerum is a uh, a large figure wearing a (laughs) straw or a conical hat and also uh, garbed in, I guess it would be a straw mantle or a cloak and then wearing sandals and uh, sort of a, a mountain monk outfit as one, one you'd see um, in, in the older films where monks are on a pilgrimage um, from either one shrine to another, um, something like that. Uh, it's a pretty easy to design, design decision and um, as I mentioned earlier with the uh and assassin robots, um, their influence or I guess the influence from uh, Mirai ninja is also present in um, Zerum's visor. Uh, his mask looks almost identical to um, the main character um, in in Mirai Ninja. So, um, as I was saying, uh, with Zerom's duel with Glenn, uh, <laughs> he Glenn is able to um, freeze Zerum in one of the um, personal shield devices. Uh, however, off screen, um Zerum escapes the the shielding and is damaged enough from the fight that um uh, he's reduced to or I guess the, the main body of Zerum is sort of destroyed, but the 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 hat that Zerum wears has a um small face <laughs> um, inside of it. I guess that there's no no other way to, no other better way to describe it. It, um, it looks like a pale, um, sort of female doll's face. And, um, the, the hat itself is organic and is potentially the main, main, actual main body of, um, Zerum at this point. Uh, because the, the hat, it, I don't know, I guess it looks like a weird, uh, it's a cross between the hat and maybe a um, shiitake mushroom cap um, because the underside of the hat is uh, organic um, and kind of sprouts little legs where it, it glides around. It can kind of climb on the walls, um, making it even even creepier than it already was. Um, but this um, disembodied hat uh, flies after um, Iria, and, uh, all the the escaping, um, crew of the Karma, and at, it, it's here that, uh, Bob, um, sort of takes over the role that, uh, Glenn was doing and, and decides to, um, hold off Zaram's advance while the others try to escape. Um, unfortunately, he's, uh, bitten in his midsection by that little, the little face, um kind of gourd and uh he's still surviving and um they uh the rest of the crew escapes um with her y- taking her turn to kind of buy them time so they're sort of just like trading off um responsibility of um uh, of, of getting these um people out of this terrible situation um and uh the the escape craft um successfully uh, f- flees the um karma with um Bob and um the vice president Putabaya aboard um along with the uh, other crew members but um Iria and Glenn are left behind on the karma and the uh the episode um it ends shortly after this point uh where Glenn um, sacrifices himself in order to um, allow Iria time to escape on the um, Creper, Uh blowing up both the Karma uh, himself and uh, Zerum. And that was the uh, that's the end of um, the first episode, Pitch Black. So I think we'll take a little bit of a break here and return to uh, cover episodes two and three uh, shortly. Before we head on to episode 2 and 3, there's one last point I'd like to discuss on episode 1. And that's at the end of it when Gren blows up the karma. He uses a bomb called the It. That just literally means happy heart or happy mind um, in Thai. And I just wanted to, I guess, address that as a further tie into uh, the influences um, used in the show. Um, I don't know if it's ironic, but <laughs> just uh, that... That state of mind um, that it's implying with the with the destruction of something is interesting. Um, also, the the bombs themselves you could term them cute. I guess they're little um, spheres with um, circular wings that pop out and little propellers. They they, they were actually they remind me of the Haro computers on uh, the in, in the Gundam series. So just an aside sort of mask i guess is something so destructive in a cute package is, is interesting and i don't know it, um aesthetically it sort of resembles the rest of the show but yeah there's not really anything else um in the first three episodes that uh that echo i guess that sentiment uh yeah well i that, that brings us to episode 2 uh, rampage and um in this episode, I guess it'll be a little bit shorter for the coverage because not much really happens here. Um, after the destruction of the Karma area, uh, is left adrift in space. You sort of look at this uh, as similar to the beginning of um, Alien Three, where she's you know she's drifting in her uh, creeper, um, but it's the equivalent of like a stasis pod, I imagine. In context anyway, um, and finds herself overlooking a um, a large planet that is uh, at first glance um, mice but turns out to be of course um, a, a different planet altogether so with her the life supports on the on the Kripper, um, I guess the shielding failing from the explosion, uh, she has to make an emergency landing descends down to the, the surface of the planet, also ostensibly to uh, refuel her ship because it's low on low on gas. So the planet she finds herself on is Tawajan, and it is in fact a resort planet, or at least it had originally been, uh, I don't know if terraformed is probably the wrong word, um, it had been settled um, with, with the goal of it being a resort planet, but... The signs and the habitations she um, first encounters are run down. I wouldn't say it's a failed property, but maybe it's grown past um, usefulness as a resort. Or it's uh, one that's been in decline is probably the better way to term it. And here we get a lot of the similar design choices. So this is basically, it looks a lot like a um, more traditional village than what we saw on mice and and despite this being a different planet the signage she finds and the the language of the people are um indistinguishable from that on mice as far as iria is concerned anyway she has a pair of hunter's goggles like a lens really it's just sort of a hunter's monocle (laughs) i guess you might call it uh, but she's not; she doesn't need to use that to um, decipher anything. So it's all the, I guess, the viewer has to assume that it's the same language uh, as what you find on mice, or at least a dialect that's something that she's familiar with. She, she has no trouble communicating. And then it's also here uh, that we run into uh, a few characters that will be reoccurring throughout the series um, in one form or another. That is Kei and komimasa they're young um village children orphans um, p- potentially at this point it doesn't really explain that but they're they're kids just trying to survive on the on the streets um and as such they are street wise and <clears throat> target area as a potential source of income in that they can rob her of her belongings and sell them uh, for, we don't get an exchange rate, but it's not a, a, from their tone, it's not a considerable sum of money. Um, They they plan on hijacking the creeper and and selling it for parts, I guess, um, just to feed themselves, but they don't sound too optimistic on how much money that's going to net them. Uh, Just a temporary fix for a, a permanent problem that they have. So we get sort of a um I don't know, it's not really a serious uh, fight at all. It's a, sort of a zany little chase sequence, um where the the group of kids they form a plan to basically distract Iria while Kay being the I guess second in command or the most brash goes and attempts to steal the craper This of course is the plan doesn't work out quite so well, but we do see Kumimasa identifies uh, Iria as an apprentice hunter, because at first they're they're wary because they think she's one of the a, a full fledged hunter, and they decide that since she's an apprentice, she shouldn't pose too much of a problem. This ends up being the case a little bit, um as opposed to some of the competency we witnessed um in episode one w- when Iria resolved the hostage situation, and then later <clears throat> aboard the Karma. In this instance, she ends up having a little bit of trouble uh, dealing with these few street urchins. Uh, (laughs) And it, I guess, provides a little bit of comedic levity to the the dour situation of her brother just having sacrificed himself and she doesn't know the fate of Bob or the other uh, karma passengers. I guess it would also be important to not overlook uh, the fact that uh, Kay in particular notices um, Iria's hair beads uh, and points out that those are generally reserved for for men. This is something that Iria is wearing in adoration or imitation of her older brother, Glenn, who the show kind of makes a point of... um, Noticing that uh, Glenn has a habit of, like, flicking his hair beads uh, just when he's bragging about something. Um, it's just a like, little character trait. But um, I think it's a design decision. The hair beads look pretty cool. Um, they're only on the left-hand side, um, and it's Aria, I think, wears, like, four, four specific beads. Um, she's pick them out like individually i guess um we find out later that she has a specific favorite hair bead um <laughs> versus them all just being indistinguishable but yeah the the kids try to pull one over on her and uh it doesn't doesn't work out okay basically continually um eggs area on um further incensing the the hunter and probably not a wise choice, because Iria ends up taking pot shots at uh, Kay. She's not aiming to hit the the kids, but just just kind of scare them off. Um, unfortunately, all the, the kids can think of is their eyes on the prize of, you know, stealing this vehicle. As these things go, um, those plans, as we mentioned, ultimately fail, but instead, I, <laughs> through this comedy of errors, um, Iria gains an enthusiastic uh, sidekick M in the form of K. This levity is, of course, short-lived. Um, it, it serves its purpose to de- distract Iria. um And our good buddy Zerim uh, makes an appearance, or I guess his reappearance, as a falling star crashing into the slums of Tawajan. Zerum's appearance also gives us the idea that the government... Uh, and, and potentially some of the populace at large um, are are aware of Zerum and its immortal nature. Uh, however, within the the confines of the actual episode, um, we get a little bit more information on at least Zerum is sort of, sort of able to be stalled. um physical damage as long as it's persistent uh, can um, slow Zerum down. Uh, As Zerum crashed from the explosion of the the karma, there was a a large piece of shrapnel embedded through the the hat portion um, of its body, and that large chunk prevents it from just wholly regenerating. Um, it, It needs to have that removed, so any source of um, injury can't be uh, perpetual. So I guess if you could continually injure Zerum, that would be enough to stall its regeneration capabilities. And and of course, uh, to keep up the tension of the show, um, Zerum crash lands into a portion of the slums outside of the Tawajan Resort, where Iria had also landed. Um, and due to the interference of the, the slum kids, Iria uh, still hasn't refueled her creeper, so she's not really in a position immediately to intercept Sarum. She's also busy with the Tawajan uh, port transfer authorities. Um, she wants to use the transporters on the planet to, to get herself back to Mice. Of course, uh, that costs money, which she's currently broke at the moment. And as, as Zerum is rampaging through the slums, Iria is speaking with the port authorities, asking why they're not doing anything to at least try to stop Zerum. To which we get a little a serious note here. Um, the port authorities deem that Zerum is... Uh, performing like a necessary function for them uh, or or they're seeing its destruction of the slums as a good thing uh it's it's cleaning up the trash as it were and potentially removing a an eyesore uh, on the resort to that would eventually lead to revitalizing the tourism industry for Tawajan and that's yeah that's not a great thing uh (laughs) so Iria takes it upon herself at this point um Especially considering she has no no way to get off planet to go and try and stop Zerum either once and for all uh, because she really doesn't understand the immortal nature of this monster uh, or at least get it out of the slums where it's, it's killing people. Of course, uh, the Transit Authority, when they let Iria in on their plan to just basically ignore Zerum, they also... Tell her that they're not really worried um, for their own safety because they have teleporters uh, installed around the headquarters building um, to basically get rid of any riffraff that uh, tries to attack, as well as a a giant uh, shield security system. So, while area is aware, or I guess this area is aware of of that. Potential, and um, she makes use of it. Uh, eventually, luring Zerum uh, to those teleporter units, and gets rid of him uh, through the help of a mysterious voice um, coming over the the in- intercom uh, that she has in her ship. Uh, also, she has this is one of the first appearances of her strangely specific um, bounty hunter tools. Non-lethal rocket-propelled pine cones. I don't know which one. Little cones. I'm not, not a pine cone. Um, but she's able to launch them, and they push uh, Zerim into one of the teleporter units, uh, so she can activate it and get rid of him, uh, sending him who knows where. Uh, there's. <laughs> I don't see a way that they they have a specific destination. It must be like pre-programmed because she just flicks a switch and it it teleports him. And that uh, brings us to the end of episode two. Episode three is entitled Vestige. Uh, oh, I guess an interesting thing about these titles, um, they s- rarely, if if at all, have anything to do with what's going on in the episode. Um, from one of the uh, interviews with um, Amemia, he he's stated that he was also curious as to um how the episodes were named by the um the director and the director informed him that they had chosen the episode um titles based upon uh the script that had uh, i guess the um subscript for the initial illustrations uh that Mi had provided to the um animation team so they're they're just kind of in reference to uh, the original sketches that they'd used for inspiration um, rather than anything uh, to do with the episode um, in general. However, you can make some um, inferences and, and kind of relate things that happen um, back, I guess, to each of these episode titles. Uh, episode 3 has Iria returning to mice. And the first thing she does, well, she tries to return to her and um, her brother's home, but she finds out the place has been ransacked, and who shows up but uh, Fujikuro, uh, who's attempting to warn her that something's uh, amiss, and um, the people that ransacked her home are still around um, looking for her, I guess. As the assailants return to the uh, the house, Iria makes her escape. Um, she ends up. She doesn't really trust um, Fujiko fully. She thinks that he, he could have possibly been the one that um, wrecked the house, but uh, it, as it turns out, the, the the intruders are taking shots at both fujikoro and and Iria. So he's. Probably not um, in league with the the people after her. At this point, anyway. The both of them end up fleeing on Fujikuro's vehicle, the Dempadan. So I don't I don't recall if I describe this one, but uh, it's. it's an interesting vehicle. I think it's a little bit more so um, personable than the uh, prepper. Uh, this one looks like a large umbrella with a single person um, harness attached to it, and uh, Fujikoro just kind of hangs on the in, in a seat from the umbrella shaft, and the the back part of it has a sort of hook. Uh, that I guess he could use to stow um, quarry that he's captured. And Iria sort of uses that that back hook to to hang on to um, in their flight because she you know, sort of hastily jumps on uh, the Adempadan, um as her creeper is uh, booby trapped and it explodes. and we're treated again to the uh tip of uh, um assassin robots uh th- these are the guys that are after Iria, and they are chasing the, the Dempadon in like it's, it's probably my favorite vehicle aside from the, the Dempadon looks cool but um these are little um two-man tanks um with a huge inflated cushion um on the top where the, the turret I guess on top of the turret of the tank and what it does is the, the cushion inflates uh, as the, the cannon um, absorbs some sort of energy in order to, to fire its um, blasts out of, out of, the, out of the, the barrel of the cannon uh, and they use this of course to affect um, area uh, by accident or design Um, loses her part of her, um, I guess it was a covering, uh, goes flying off and hits an intake um, on the tank and sucked in and what that does is as the um, the bladder inflates it like it's ends up crumpling inwards um, because uh, the intake vent is blocked, uh, preventing the weapon from firing. I I, I anticipated that the, the the thing would explode instead, but um, we were unfortunately denied that, and the, it just ceases functioning. Not the canon part of it, anyway. So, as they're being chased by these assassin robots, we're treated to the return of the mysterious voice. Uh, as it turns out, Fujikuro was hired by the owner of the voice on the radio to uh, protect Iria. And... Potentially um, act as an escort. It's supposed to get her away from the uh, assassin robots, but instead, uh, Iria is determined to check in on the vice president of the um, Tipidae Corporation. As Iria is returning home, we hear news broadcasts stating that Bob, uh, or at least one of the members of the Golmbek security, um, Investigations uh, company was killed in a traffic accident, and the there were no survivors of the explosion on the Karma. Um, That includes the vice president of the Tedantipadai Corporation. Uh, At this point, of course, Iria is doubtful of the the truth of any of that, and and to to verify her suspicions, uh, she heads to the Tedantipadai. Headquarters building, and I'm sure she's not at all suspicious that uh, her pursuers are those self same assassin uh, robots from Terantipadai. So she, along with Fujikuro, uh, pursued by these balloon tanks, make their way to the uh, Terantipadai headquarters, and uh, Iria eventually ascends the building. Um, led by the, the voice on her communicator to the proper floor where the vice president has holed himself up. Um, he is, of course, as we find out, not dead and has orchestrated this entire conspiracy where, in fact, Zerum uh, had not invaded the karma but was uh, brought was brought on board by the uh, Tedan Thibadai Corporation uh, as a potential... Weapon they use against, I guess, their enemies. And at this point, it doesn't get into the reason why why they've attempted to um, capture Zerum. And aside from the assassin robots, Iria had recovered the vice president's pendant, um, inside of which was a like a little data chip implicating him in the acquisition of Zerum. When Iria meets with the vice president, he Bargains uh, with her uh, in exchange for the the chip. Um, once he finds out that she has it on her, he offers officer, of course, um, like a, a payout, and um, which she declines. It turns out the uh, the chip not only implicates him um, in this particular instance, but it also, uh, I guess, airs in some dirty laundry. He has a, a mistress on the side, and that's who he's addressed uh, the the messages on the the chip to. It's also here that we see shield system used as a personal defense device rather than a way to <clears throat> put someone in suspended animation. He activates the device as he's uh, sit- seated behind his desk and Iria he is pinned um, theoretically in between his desk and the elevator that she came um, up on where now, of course, his um, security detachment is, is coming up the elevator and they're just kind of Brazenly firing into the room because all of their um, small arms fire uh, is just being deflected off of the shield or like absorbed or whatever. Of course, that doesn't deter Iria, uh, and she makes use of the situation to jump out of one of the windows but um, not, of course, fall to her death. She's using a little grappling line to, to hang on. Um, the vice president... <laughs> thinking he's in control of the situation um, deactivates his shield and leans out to gloat uh, over her and to his chagrin, I guess um, is captured by the <laughs> She loops a, her line around him and drags him out of the window as well. Um, then sort of bungee cables him up and down to different floors, um, s- smashing him into the, 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 building, uh, in revenge against the, the things that she's, the slice that he's done to her. She, she's <laughs> revenge for her brother, revenge for Bob, who she thinks is dead at this point. Um, however, the, the voice comes back over her intercom and, um, <laughs> tells her to get to the, the top of the building, because more guards are coming up and um, she needs to escape. So with the vice president in tow, she heads up through the elevators, I believe. Um, Again, using another uh, particularly uh, effective device. It's a portable cable cutter. I guess that would be useful in other situations as well, but she uses it to um, sever the the elevator cable line so no one else can follow her up um, to the top floor. And uh, when she gets there, she's uh, she's greeted by a familiar voice, um, the same one we've heard over the radio for a while, uh, coming from a computer console. Where it turns out uh, Bob isn't as dead as we were led to believe, and um, instead he's survived as a... Digitized version of himself um, trapped in the Ted uh, mainframe however there's a way that Iria can free him um, from his temporary prison and of course she, she does so and leaves the vice president kind of in the lurch um, he's tied up and she hands him back the, the pendant that he's <clears throat> been after all this time and makes her get away on the company transporter along with the new avatar of Bob which sort of resembles like a Vajra symbol uh, it's a orb with two little pyramids on, or a pyramid on the top and the bottom as she vanishes on the teleporter the, the vice president is of course left gloating over his, his prize and uh, he opens up the pendant and a gas is released instead. It's it's empty, the area kept to the microchip. And it just sets off the smoke alarms, and he's just kind of left pouting in the rain, or the, <laughs> the fire suppressant. And that brings us to the end of episode three, but not the end of the show. Uh, we do have some feedback. This is from at... The Patches uh, on Twitter. Uh, Iria thoughts. I have been a fan of this OVA since I saw it two decades ago, and I don't think I'll ever fall out of love with it. For me, the beauty of it is how every time I went back to it to look at it with fresh perspective, I found something I'd missed. When I first saw the OVA, it was a neat sci-fi adventure with a unique setting. When I returned to it in college, I noticed that the OVA traces the pattern of uh, the Alien franchise with its escalating plot lines. Later, when I, got into, when I started to get into feminist critique, I noticed that Yuria falls neatly into the mold of hyper-competent women that dominate 90s OVAs. Moreover, the plot is coherent and feels complete. Sure, I love these characters and want, the, want to see more, but it doesn't feel rushed or partial uh, compared to, say, Yeast or even Bubblegum Crisis. That coherence gives it a fair amount of crossover appeal. Combined with its, with its visually distinct opening episode, it's one of those works that I feel I can show people who are on the fence about anime as a medium. Heck, even the dub is solid. Since the tone of the dialogue is sober and doesn't require much overacting, uh, again helped by Iria's uh, even temperament, it doesn't demand its cast sell stuff that works in Japanese but not in English. Every time I go to make a list, I seriously consider Iria to be the best standalone OVA. Sure, the Slayers' OVA and Full Metal Panic Fumofu manage to do more with their characters, but that's working from an existing template. Iria is paced beautifully, oozes style, and has serious action chops. Uh, the entire episode where they break into the Tadon Corporation uh, should feel like filler, but as a series of strong set pieces that makes it as entertaining as any of the other episodes. And that's episode three. Um, there is a reason why I've owned three copies of this show. Uh, that's, that's the end of his feedback from the patches. Uh, I agree with these, and I've um, taken a little bit of time to point out some of the similarities to Aliens. Uh, I, I think that that's an apt um, influence on what they've done with the OVA series. Uh, and I also own three copies of this. <laughs> I guess um, I, I, I probably watched this around the, the same time in my life. Um, it, it aired briefly on the Sci-Fi Channel uh, in the 90s. It wasn't the complete OVA. It was, I think, episode, probably just episode one. But I had the, uh, the VHS copy of this. Um, I don't remember how they split it. It was probably two episodes per VHS for... Um, three VHS tapes for the collection uh, or it was split like the DVD and they crammed it um, three episodes and a second tape for three episodes Uh, as well as the first um, I did pick up the first DVD release of this uh, and the master's collection which which just came out last year which is what I'm uh, using to sort of as my overview of the show Uh, I think that that wraps us up for this uh, first episode of Hard Rock Saves the Space Dandy. We'll be returning next week to finish up the Xerum OVA before we turn to the live-action movies. If you have any questions or comments you'd like to send into the show, you can contact us at RockSpaceDandy on Twitter, uh, or you can send them directly to myself at Sentinot underscore plus. Um, I'll have the links to both of those in the show notes. And with that, I'll leave you with a little uh, outro tune. All the music on the show was composed by Jake Lionheart, and links to his band camp will be also be in the show notes.